and Haley. And I'm Dalton. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can contact us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. This week, we're excited to have Dr. Carrie Healy. Dr. Carrie Healy served as the 70th Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts from 2003 to 2007 under Governor Mitt Romney. Healy was president of Babson College from 2013 to June 2019 and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Healy will be the first president of the Center for Advancing the American Dream. Dr. Carrie Healy, thank you for being with us. You started your career in Massachusetts politics. Uh, you ran for local office. Can you tell us about what it's like running a campaign in a district that is heavily affiliated with an opposite party? Well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Um, when I started running for office, I was 38 years old. I had a six-year-old and a three-year-old uh, in tow with me. I was going door-to-door, door-knocking in places where basically more than 90 or just around 90% of the people were going to be in parties other than my party. Uh, I was a Republican in a place where Republicans constituted right around 10%, 10 to 13%, depending on the particular district um, of the voting electorate. And so I knew I wasn't going to have a great reception. But what I did know is that the importance of the democratic system in America is that you run and you get to talk about what's important to you. And I had been spending my prior 10 years of my career, from the time I was in my late 20s, looking at issues around crime and justice. So I had been looking at drug and gang violence. I'd been looking at child abuse and neglect, domestic violence, what happens when you get out of jail and prison. And I felt that those issues were important enough so that even if I ran and nothing happened in terms of anyone voting for me, at least I'd have the opportunity to get up on the debate stage and have a discussion about things that I cared about and that I think many people in society care about, but that people weren't really talking about very much at that time. And so I, I think it was a good experience. I would encourage anyone who thinks that they might want to run, to run, even if they know they will not win. Because I assure you they will get something very valuable out of it in terms of experience, in terms of seeing, honestly, the best in humanity because people come out and and fight for their beliefs on both sides and that's a very inspiring thing to see. Hmm. So then after that, you moved on to lead the Massachusetts Republican State Committee. Um, how did the Massachusetts GOP start working with Mitt Romney leading up to the gubernatorial race of 2002? Well, first of all, I have to emphasize what a small group this was. <laughs> this was not a massive uh, organization. In fact, when I took over uh, the Massachusetts GOP, uh, it was in an office that um, had it was holding the carpet together with uh, masking tape. Uh, our phone had been cut off and we were massively in debt and people were suing us. So it was not a very prestigious job. It sounds so much nicer in retrospect than it was. But we were out looking for a candidate who could retain the governor's seat because Massachusetts is a pretty unique place in that 85% of its legislature are Democrats, but they often want to see a Republican in that top office to give some balance 
to the legislative process. And I think it's very wise. I think people in Massachusetts are very wise that they know what they want. They know they want to elect Democrats, but they know that having a tempering voice there so that uh, the legislature doesn't have runaway spending is, is a good idea. And so you'll see that for you know the majority of the last 30 years, there's been a Republican governor and, and this uh, very strongly Democratic legislature. Um, but anyway, I, I was looking around to see who might be able to retain that office because at the time we had an, an acting governor uh, in place and she was not polling well. It was very unlikely that she was going to be able to retain the, the gubernatorial seat. Not the least because there had not been a woman ever elected uh, governor yet at that time. So it was going to be a big stretch in any event and she wasn't polling well. So I made the very difficult decision as a uh, party chairman to look around and say, what can I do to help our party retain the seat? And Mitt Romney was out at that time uh, in Utah running the Winter Olympics and he had done a, a great job doing that, really turned them around from a position of uh, bankruptcy and corruption and he had been doing it under very difficult circumstances because it was right after 9-11 and people were extremely concerned about security. So he stood out as someone who had had a brief political career running against Ted Kennedy in, in Massachusetts and someone who people knew and liked generally and someone who would have the gravitas to retain that seat. And so I flew out to Utah in the middle of the uh, Winter Olympics and begged for a short meeting. I believe I got 15 minutes uh, meeting with him. It lasted for an hour and 15 minutes, which was good news. But uh, eventually he agreed to come back. Now, I, I know at this point that he'd probably already been considering that, so I don't want to make myself out to be a magician. But uh, what I was able to do was to partner with him uh, once he came back. and had a great experience working with him in Massachusetts because he was laser focused on economic issues. He closed a very large uh, budget gap. And as you know, states aren't like the federal government. They can't operate with a budget gap. They have to close it. Um, and had such good fiscal policies in place that at the end of four years, we had uh, more than $2 billion in a rainy day fund. He looked to me for social policy and so I was able to do some very creative things uh, around criminal justice reform and homelessness and, and working uh, with domestic violence and, and sex uh, abuse. And so it was uh, a great and very fulfilling moment for me to be able to be Lieutenant Governor with Mitt Romney. <laughs> At what point did you know that you were going to run as Lieutenant Governor supporting Romney. About three days before the conference, uh, before the convention. So I actually lost the nominating uh, convention because I had I didn't even have time to have my bio printed up and put it on the chairs of the delegates. Uh, so it was, uh, I believe I got 45% of the vote and I, I, I lost to someone who had been running for several years uh, for that position. We had a very uh, pitched uh, primary, and then I was partnered with uh, Mitt in the in the general election. So, what was your experience like campaigning for a statewide office compared to your earlier local races? You know, I think that actually campaigning at any level is equally strenuous. 
It's just a question of the geography you have to, to cover. So if you're running for a very local office, you actually have to cover the geography entirely and you have to do it on foot. And if you're running for statewide office, it's just a question of how quickly you can drive around the state and how big your state is. And if you're running for president, it's, you know, do you have a plane that can get you to all the places that you need to go? But there are only so many hours in the day, and whether you're, you know, campaigning for school committee or whether you're campaigning for president, you can only fill 24 hours. So you mentioned before that as Lieutenant Governor, you had a very successful record in numerous public safety and criminal justice programs. Can you tell us a little bit more about working with then Governor Romney on those policy agendas and how you made that happen? Well, I, again, as I mentioned, I was very lucky to have a governor who allowed me to work in my areas of expertise and who delegated very generously. Uh, each lieutenant governor around the, the country has different duties. Some of them have a lot of responsibility and, and head up our president of their legislatures. Um, others have actually almost no duties. And in Massachusetts, that's the case for the lieutenant governor. So the lieutenant governor can only do what the governor actually uh, seconds to them. So so I was, I was fortunate to do that. Um, I think probably the piece that makes me most gratified, I guess there are probably two things that me, that give me a great deal of uh, you know, satisfaction looking back on it now. And I have been out of office now for 12 years. Uh, so I've had a chance to see things season and change. Um, what, the first one would be the reforms that we did for uh, drunk driving. And at the time, we had some of the most lenient drunk driving laws in the country. And we were seeing uh, more than 200 people a year killed uh, on our roads. And when you see that, it also means that there are many hundreds of people who are injured and maimed uh, in drunk driving accidents as well. And just the, the human suffering associated with those deaths is, and those injuries is enormous. And many, many people had tried to get the legislature to tighten up their laws and, and raise the... The, the levels um, of, of penalties for drunk driving and to make sure that people couldn't continually get out of jail and continually get their licenses back. Um, but it took a really pitched battle and it took a very, um, very brave family to come forward and, and work with me on what was known as Melanie's Bill for Melanie Powell, who was a 13-year-old girl who was run over by a drunk driver in the middle of the day as she was walking home from a birthday party. Mm. and. So I think everyone began to come out and tell their stories and began to put pressure on politicians through the media. We worked very closely, interestingly, with the media to keep those stories of real people from Massachusetts who were losing their loved ones in the public eye so that people couldn't just you know, shove it to the side and say, we like it the way it is because it actually is quite good for uh, personal injury lawyers or for lawyers that deal with drunk driving cases. There was a very strong lobby around not changing things from the legal community. And we finally were able to overcome that. And as a result, the, the deaths came down dramatically in the first year. There were 50 or so fewer deaths in the first year. And, and even today, it's about 25% lower death rate than it was over a, a decade ago. And I think that those gains are incredibly important. I often think about how many people are alive today and how many families are together, how many people are able to work uh, who, 
you know, who would not have been around otherwise. And so when, when people ask me, you know, oh, politics is, is such a horrible, you know, horrible business, how could you do that? And, you know, what, what made you think it was worthwhile? I think about all the lives that were saved simply by changing a law. And I'm not alone in this. Every, every legislature, legislator has the ability to save lives and improve lives through changing laws. So, so that's, that's one thing. And the second thing that I'm very proud of looking back uh, is that we, we saw, unfortunately, the heroin epidemic coming. We saw the, the addiction coming into our communities and we established three recovery high schools for young people who were heroin addicts or opiate, uh, opiate addicts uh, in their early teens and who were able to go to treatment and we established more treatment programs for young people but once they went back to their regular high schools they immediately saw the people who had been dealing drugs to them or their friends who had been using drugs and the average time to relapse was two weeks and so it was tragic uh, to see that that many young people who were who were in recovery were choosing to drop out of high school and, and just literally limit their ability to succeed in life because they'd rather be sober than be educated. And so we thought it was scandalous that there was no option for young people to both be in a drug-free environment and to study. And so we established these three, um, three recovery high schools. Now we have five in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, there's, there's still a waiting list to get into them. But when I go back to the graduations and hear the stories of the young people who are going to college, who are sober, who are, you know, with their families and you know, able to have a future and a hopeful future, it's it's one of the most fulfilling, exciting things that uh, that I can possibly see. And that was a fully bipartisan effort. Mm -hmm. I should say that uh, the people I worked with to do that were some of the most uh, liberal. Uh, Democrats uh, in Massachusetts, uh, one of whom is the head of the uh, Massachusetts AFL-CIO now, and the other of whom uh, is now the mayor of Boston. So um, we worked together and we worked together with the teachers unions and everybody to make sure that we were able to establish these, these recovery high schools, and I'm very pleased that they exist. So you also mentioned the $2.1 billion fund that you guys had left over after your term. Um, how much did you, or how were you able to pull that off, and how much did you have to work across the aisle on that issue to get things done and be economically sustainable? I think what, what we were able to do was to look at our budget from the ground up. And, and this is where having someone who has a business background in government is so helpful because Mitt Romney's approach to budgeting with all of our various agencies was very rational, and, and he would meet with all of them and go through every line item and say what's essential, what's important to have, and what's nice to have, and really pair things back. And the other question that was being asked, which I think is so important in government to ask, is which programs are working and which ones aren't? And if something isn't working, you've got to stop doing it. It's not going to work better because you add to it. Uh, and I like right now this whole movement behind social impact bonds because it forces accountability on government programming and says we aren't going to pay you unless you have the results that are necessary. So 
Um, I, I think that it is possible to run government more efficiently and more effectively and more humanely if you are actually funding things that work for people. So what was your strategy when running for governor in 2006? Ah, so I would say that I was hoping to build on the tradition of so many Republican governors who have asked the question, do you believe that balance matters between the legislature and, and the executive branch? And when I heard back from my polls that that actually wasn't people's top priority at that moment in time, I knew that I was going to have trouble uh, because Ultimately, um, people were overwhelmingly more interested in having a Democrat uh, in office than a Republican. So if I didn't have something special to offer them uh, in, in terms of balance, then I really didn't have an agenda that I could sell. And the other thing that was extraordinary was that at that moment, uh, no one really knew who Deval Patrick was or who David Axelrod was, who was his uh, campaign manager. Um, and David Axelrod had not yet run Barack Obama's campaign, um, but it was clear they were excellent politicians. And they came out of nowhere and they took everyone by surprise. So your, your current work focuses heavily on the American dream and unifying, unifying America's moderate majority. What do you hope to accomplish through your new work, through your think tank and the different uh, book that you're writing and things like that? So I'm, I'm the first president of something called the, the Center for Advancing the American Dream. It's going to be located physically right across from the U.S. Treasury on Pennsylvania Avenue, but it's going to be online before it's a, a physical presence. And our goal is to tell the history of America through the lens of those who came here seeking a better life, seeking the American Dream, and at the same time to take a very clear-eyed look at where we are today as a nation and see where we are falling short of those ideals. Who is being left behind and what can we do to make sure that opportunity is available equally uh, across the nation to, to everyone, no matter where they grew up, no matter what their background is. Uh, how can we make sure that the promise of America is available to them? And there are so many people across the country working on this issue from different perspectives. There are people who are trying to bring access to capital uh, for entrepreneurs in the Midwest. There are people who are trying to make sure that educational opportunities are available to people regardless of wh where they come from, uh, what their financial ability are, is. There are people who are looking at, and trying to figure out you know, what kind of financial literacy is needed for people to make good choices in their life so that they don't take on debt, whether it's student debt or housing debt or some other kind of debt, that they, that they don't understand what that's going to do to their ability to prosper and, and be able to provide for their family in the long run. So there's, there are a lot of people who are working on these issues, and I want to convene them uh, at the Center for Advancing the American Dream, allow them to collaborate, and hopefully there'll be some synergy created. So that unifying mission can bring up some questions about our current political climate and makes us wonder, do you think that political polarization can ever be resolved and, and how so? So my personal philosophy about political polarization is that it's come from a lack of uh, a willingness on the part of both parties uh, to 
look at all of their policy proposals through the lens of human dignity. All people want on the left and the right is someone to respect their human dignity and to think about how they can have the freedom to live their lives and provide for their families in the best way possible. And so I'm hoping that our discussion around the American dream will allow people to come together and think about not where the American dream has fallen short because it's always fallen short when those ideals were first put into place by our founding fathers. America was anything but able to meet that dream. Uh, there was not equality of any variety in America when our beautiful Constitution and, and, and Bill of uh, Declaration of Independence was written and our Bill of Rights. But we've been very carefully and very slowly working toward a more inclusive and equal America. And I believe that it's well worth making sure that we preserve those ideals and hold them out as something to aspire to. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having those discussions, having them with people from both sides of the aisle, being a safe place to convene and have spirited arguments about them, but always through the lens of respecting one another. All right, so now we're gonna to move on to our last section, the lightning round. We have three quick questions for you. First, what's the best Massachusetts tradition you enjoyed while on the campaign trail? Well, actually, the first thing that I really loved doing was uh, St. Peter's Fiesta. It's in Gloucester, Massachusetts. It's a great fishing town, and they have a tradition of a greased pole that they put between two ships, and then people try to walk across it, and then they fall into the icy water. <laughs> So you're a new resident of DC. What's your favorite thing about the city so far? I love going to all the museums because I'm building a museum. I have an excuse to go see all of them. So I've been spending all my, my weekends going and so far I really enjoyed the spy museum. Mm. So last question, if you could get dinner with any political figure, past or present, who would it be? Oh, it would have to be Margaret Thatcher. When I was growing up, there were so few women role models in, in public service, and I love her biography, the fact that she came from such a, a middle-class family, that she, she fought her way up through a, a, a political system that was so dominated by men at that time, and she held her own, and she was a brilliant ideological leader. So I, uh, I would absolutely want to speak with Margaret Thatcher. Dr. Healy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall Podcast. This is our final episode of the season, but we'll be back in January with new episodes. And make sure you stay in touch on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you have comments or questions, please email us, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you in January.